because I was so young, I didn't know what was going on. I just followed what my parents uh, asked me to do. As a child, I, I had no feelings one way or another. I was just, I thought it was another adventure. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. In today's episode, we're examining Executive Order 9066. Signed at the height of anti-Japanese hysteria during World War II, the order allowed the U.S. government to incarcerate almost 120,000 people of Japanese descent, two-thirds of whom were American citizens. And there were two incarceration camps here in Arizona. In today's episode, you'll hear what life was like in the Arizona camps from someone who grew up in one. Today's episode is reported by Katie O'Connell. According to the Library of Congress, in 1900, there were fewer than 25,000 people of Japanese descent living in the U.S. But with the turn of the century came a 25-year period in which 100,000 Japanese immigrants arrived. My name is Donna Chung, C-H-E-U-N-G, and I'm the president of the Japanese American Citizens League Arizona chapter. Donna said that anti-Asian sentiments existed in the West Coast and Arizona before World War II, especially in areas where agriculture was king. Such resentments grew alongside immigration. Where there's this competition for farmland, for what what is fertile farmland. And um, especially in the history of California, there are these basically white farm unions who consistently worked against um, Japanese-American interests, mainly by trying to lobby their local legislatures to implement, um, say, uh, alien land laws. Japanese and Chinese immigrants were barred from naturalizing, or becoming citizens, by the Naturalization Act of 1870. Then came the alien land laws in California in 1913, which barred people who weren't naturalized citizens from owning land. Arizona followed suit and passed similar legislation in 1921. The final blow came with the Immigration Act of 1924, which ended further immigration from Japan entirely. The already precarious situation for immigrant Japanese farmers in Arizona escalated during the 30s. Since white farmers were allowed to own land, they tended to have larger farms. They also tended to grow products like cotton for an international market. But when the Great Depression hit, their profits were decimated. However, Japanese American farmers grew produce like cantaloupes on smaller farms and sold them locally. This meant that their produce remained profitable during the Depression. White farmers were angry that they were doing so well. They accused Japanese Americans of doing something, you know, because Asians are seen as untrustworthy. Due to Orientalism, they were, you know, there's suspicions about how come they were doing so well. and. 
Um, that anger turned into a movement to push out aliens who are Asians. That's Karen Leong. She's an associate professor at Arizona State University, where she teaches Asian Pacific Studies, Women and Gender Studies, and American Studies. Karen said that in 1934, this movement to drive away Japanese and Punjabi farmers from the valley led to violence against them. There was a truck rally of white farmers or European-American farmers that went all the way through the valley from Mesa to Glendale. White farmers would open water gates to flood the crops of Japanese-American farmers. They'd push farm equipment into the canals. Armed gangs fired shots at Japanese-American farmers. Incendiary devices were thrown into farmhouses. One Japanese-American girl had a firebomb thrown through a window, which her bed was under. Such was the climate for Japanese Americans before World War II. Then... Good afternoon, everybody. Japan has made war upon the United States without declaring it. Airplanes, presumably from aircraft carriers, have attacked the great Pearl Harbor naval base on the island of Oahu in the Hawaiian Islands and have attacked Manila, capital of the Philippines. December 7th. 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Within 24 hours of the attack on Pearl Harbor, FBI agents and local law enforcement detained more than 2,000 people who were deemed, quote, enemy aliens. This included 1,300 Japanese Americans. Some of those Japanese Americans were religious leaders, such as Buddhist priests who stayed in touch with Buddhist leaders in Japan. It also included immigration leaders within the Japanese American community who were more affluent and often traveled back and forth between the two countries. The U.S. government had been monitoring these community members before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Afterward, they were separated from their families who did not know where they were taken to or why. Donna said this was especially devastating for farming families. If you compound that with the fact that many Japanese Americans in Arizona were also farmers. So you're left with children, women, and how do you maintain a living? And to this day, I don't know how they managed to work all that out, but they managed to survive it all. These leaders were held without legal representation in Department of Justice camps. And for many, this act of incarceration without legal representation or a trial would foreshadow things to come. In the two-month period after Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the War Department, and the Justice Department formulated a plan for the mass force removal and incarceration of Japanese-American citizens. The justification for this was as such. We knew that 
Some among them were potentially dangerous. Most were loyal. But no one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. That audio is from a 1942 propaganda video released by the War Department. Its narrator is Milton Eisenhower, the younger brother of then-General Dwight D. Eisenhower. At the time, Milton Eisenhower was the head of the War Relocation Authority. That was a federal agency that was created to forcibly remove Japanese-American citizens from the west coast of our country. But there's one key thing to know about that quote. It wasn't true. In the weeks before Pearl Harbor, businessman Curtis B. Munson had compiled a report examining the potential threat of Japanese Americans. His report concluded that they presented no security risk. But the report was sent to Roosevelt with a misleading summary of key points that obscured Munson's findings. President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942. The executive order declared certain areas military zones, including the West Coast. Anyone who was deemed a potential threat was not allowed to live in those zones, including Japanese Americans, even though the order did not specify which groups it was targeting. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our West Coast became a potential combat zone. But the War Department and the Office of War Information readily promoted the idea that such incarceration was necessary for the country's safety. There were more Japanese in Los Angeles than in any other area. At nearby San Pedro, houses and hotels occupied almost exclusively by Japanese were within a stone throw of a naval air base, shipyards oil wells. To create this military zone, the United States government drew a line of demarcation. Any Japanese American who lived on one side of the line needed to enter an incarceration site. The line of demarcation divided Washington State and Oregon. Although all of California was included, the line cut through Arizona along Grand Avenue. Throughout the entirety of my research and interviews for this episode, I couldn't find a reason why it would divide Arizona that way. The line of demarcation divided Arizona in half. Um, the line of demarcation is Grand Avenue, US 60. So Japanese Americans who live south of the line of demarcation would have to either move, and if they remained, they would be incarcerated, whereas Japanese Americans who live north of the line could remain. There was a period of time after signing the executive order in which Japanese Americans could voluntarily move to the other side of the line. But oftentimes that was an impossible feat. My name is Kathy Nakagawa and I'm an associate professor at Arizona State University in the School of Social Transformation. Kathy's father, Nick Hiroshi Nakagawa, lived on the south side of the line of demarcation in Phoenix. 
He was in high school when Executive Order 9066 was signed. His family was eventually incarcerated in Arizona. A lot of times people didn't know people outside of the line of exclusion, so, so not very many people were able to voluntarily move because when I asked my dad about it, he said, well, how do you move a whole family? You have your farm there, you have all your possessions. Where do you go to? There was also a lot of confusion during this time. Kathy recalled a story her mother told her about this. Um, a neighbor said, well, maybe they'll take your parents because they're not U.S. citizens, but they won't take your kids because you were born here. You're U.S. citizen, so we'll help out. But that wasn't the case. You know, they took everyone. Eventually, the U.S. military took over the forced removal of Japanese-American citizens. Notices were posted. All persons of Japanese descent were required to register. They gathered in their own churches and schools, and the Japanese themselves cheerfully handled the enormous paperwork involved in the migration. Now the actual migration got underway. That quote really captures the story the U.S. government tried to tell. Newsreels across the country depicted the U.S. as the benign caretaker of Japanese Americans. Before heading to an incarceration camp, Japanese Americans were held in what the War Relocation Authority called assembly centers. There were 12 of these centers in California, with one in Washington, Oregon, and Arizona. The government painted this picture of them. They lived here until new pioneer communities could be completed on federally owned lands in the interior. Santa Anita Racetrack, for example, suddenly became a community of about 17,000 persons. The Army provided housing and plenty of healthful, nourishing food for all. The next step of the journey involved Japanese Americans traveling to incarceration sites. The War Relocation Authority built 10 major Japanese American incarceration sites across the country. Two of them were in Arizona. There was what the government called the Gila River Relocation Center, which is about 45 minutes south of Chandler. Then there was what the government named the Poston War Relocation Center, which was located in Yuma County near the border of California. At each relocation center, evacuees were met by an advanced contingent of Japanese who had arrived some days earlier and who now acted as guides. Naturally, the newcomers looked about with some curiosity. They were in a new area on land that was raw, untamed, but full of opportunity. Here they would build schools, educate their children, reclaim the desert. And for the most part, Americans believed that narrative. There were dissenters, of course, but anti-Japanese sentiments, the ongoing war, and the savviness of the wartime propaganda was largely convincing. The reality of the situation was far different. The government cultivated the notion that Japanese Americans cooperated wholeheartedly. The many loyal among them felt that this was a sacrifice they could make in behalf of America's war effort. While Japanese Americans did report to be removed, it's important to note that they would be punished if they didn't. This wasn't something that was done cheerily as the Milton Eisenhower video suggests.
the temporary detention centers were, for the most part, converted fairgrounds and racetracks. People were forced to clean out the horse stalls they would sleep in. There were stories of how the smell lingered afterwards, and the average stay there was three months. Eisenhower also said that the camps were built on, quote, federally owned lands. In Arizona, that meant they were built on Native American reservations. And Donna said that the communities who were located there didn't want them because they didn't want to participate in the oppression of another minority group. They were not complicit in being host of the camps that basically the U.S. government came in and just started building uh, the incarceration camps, um, the incarceration sites, and they did not ask for permission from either the Gila River Indian community or the Colorado River Indian community. And the encroachment on reservation land wasn't small either. Poston's population reached 17,867 people in September of 1942. That made it the third largest city in Arizona at the time. Gila River had a population of 16,655 people at its height, putting it at the fourth largest city. Only Phoenix and Tucson were larger than the incarceration sites. The U.S. government hired professional photographers to go into the camps to take photos. But there were rules for what they could photograph. For instance, they weren't allowed to shoot anything that included barbed wire. The illustrations of the incarcerees smiling. To me, the juxtaposition of what we know now with seeing those images of smiling children or smiling adults while they're being in prison, to me, that's just obscene. Yeah. And I understand that's a strong word, but to me, that's just a bit obscene, too to have that, because you know they're being asked to smile when they don't even know what their future is. To discover the reality of life in the camps, I talked to someone who was there. My name is Richard Matsuishi. I'm a uh, assistant professor at the Midwestern University College of Dentistry. Richard was born in 1937 in California's Coachella Valley. That's where his parents, who were both citizens of the United States, worked as farmers. They raised produce like bell peppers and tomatoes. Richard was about four or five years old when his family was forced from their home and their farm into Poston in 1942. I remember getting on a bus similar to a Greyhound bus and our family was on the bus and, and we apparently went to uh, Parker, Arizona. And then I remember getting off of Parker and getting onto an army truck. And from, the, uh, post, uh, from Parker, we went to the Poston camp. Before his journey to Arizona, Richard didn't know that his family was being forced into incarceration. Because I was so young, I didn't know what was going on. I just followed what my parents uh, asked me to do. As a child, I, I had no feelings one way or another. I was just, I thought it was another adventure. Richard doesn't remember which month it was exactly that his family arrived in Poston. He said it was somewhere between February and April of 1942. But it wasn't too hot. Not yet. 
Dell Webb was given the contract to build the housing at Poston. Webb would go on to develop Sun City after the war, becoming rich enough to co-own the New York Yankees. But at the time, construction of the camps was so rushed that... They weren't even finished when people started arriving, so people were in very tight quarters, oftentimes six, eight to ten people living in one room. That's Jody Crago. He's the museum administrator for the Chandler Museum, which currently has an exhibit on the Gila River incarceration camp. Jody said that the infrastructure necessary to have electricity, running water, and a working sewage system did not exist. They had to be built at both camps. Um, so they constantly tried to build the camps up. So there were many cases where um, dysentery and other uh, illnesses were um, infected because of poor sanitation. There was no running water in the housing barracks. Internees had to use a latrine located on their block instead. There wasn't air conditioning either. Dell Webb's crews used raw lumber to build the barracks. When the summer heat came, the wood shrank, leaving gaps between the planks that were large enough for people to see through. It also made it easier for sand and dust to get into the barracks during summer storms. That led to a lot of respiratory illnesses. Richard said the barracks were about 100 feet by 20 feet and they were divided into units based on the size of your family. His family included his parents and his younger sister, Agnes, so they lived in a space that was about 20 feet by 20 feet. That space would become even more crowded when his brother Edward was born in 1944. Barren walls, barren floors, one ceiling light hanging down, one stove in the center, and that was it, and some cots, and that was it. And there was no ceiling, it was just a roof, so you could hear everything that was going on. And partitions, we didn't have any partitions, so my parents uh, hung some rope and got some army blankets and divided it into so we would have some privacy. People used leftover wires to create things like hangers for their clothing, or a toilet paper holder. Scrap metal was used to create gardening tools. Scrap wood was used to build things like bookends. Richard said that the mess halls were so small, families had to eat in shifts. The meals were, you know, palatable, but nothing extravagant. I think they got meat maybe once a day or once a week. Jobs at the camp were scarce. Den Show is a nonprofit organization aimed at keeping alive the memory of this chapter of history. They have an online encyclopedia with information about life at both camps. It says that only 58% of people in the Gila River camp worked for wages. Jobs there included working in agriculture, in a camouflage net factory, or in positions throughout the camp, like working in mess halls or the hospital. At Poston, Richard said his dad was lucky enough to be employed as the block manager and postmaster. And so he was paid, I think, he might have gotten $12 a month, because even the professionals were only getting like $20 or $19 a month. To make ends meet, 
Richard's dad would carve small birds out of egg crates. His mother would paint them in vivid detail based on an Audubon book they had. Uh, and they sold those to a place in, I think it was Salt Lake City for, I think, $1.79. Farming was a part of life at both the Poston and Gila River camps. And that's true for a few reasons. Many of the internees were farmers before incarceration. You could see that although they were in the middle of the desert, the Japanese-American incarcerees were able to reclaim the land and make things grow. Food grown in the camps could supplement government-provided rations. But as men were drafted for the war, many farms near the camps needed workers. Internees were allowed to leave the camp to go work on those farms. At Parker, they undertook the irrigation of fertile desert lands. Meanwhile, in areas away from the coast and under appropriate safeguards, many were permitted to enter private employment, particularly to work in sugar beet fields where labor was badly needed. Healthcare and education were provided by the federal government at the camps. However, it's important to note one thing. Much like farming, there was a labor shortage in the U.S. during the war for doctors and teachers. That meant that hospitals and schools outside of the camps had a difficult time filling vacant positions. They did pay well and teachers would, would come, but oftentimes didn't stay very long because they could then get a, a better paying traditional school job somewhere else and so they would come for short times. What was then called Arizona State Teachers College did train some teachers who then taught at the camp. Oftentimes, Japanese-American internees became teaching assistants. Jody said that they were not allowed to become full teachers themselves, even if they had been a teacher prior to incarceration. It was very sparse. Some of the books uh, were donated, of course. Some apparently might have been bought. The school itself was, again, just a barrack, barren. Some of them didn't even have any desks. Uh, I remember in nursery school, we, uh, we, had to, we had to take a nap on the floor. I asked Richard about his experiences with the medical facilities at Poston. He says he never went to the dentist while he was incarcerated, but there were doctors and nurses available. Once, Richard had to have a cyst lanced. He remembers the boy who was treated before him screaming. The reason I think uh, that that young boy was yelling was because there was no anesthesia. Despite the hardships of incarceration, there were moments of levity as well. Things like movies, baseball, and crafts provided a sense of normalcy. The thing I remember mostly was on Saturday nights, they would have a movie out by the reservoir, and they had a big, big screen, and we all took our uh, whatever seats we had and sat and watched the movie. Another form of recreation came through America's pastime, baseball. Kenichi Zanamura was a semi-pro baseball player who was held at the Gila River camp. He was a very significant individual, played against Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig when they barnstormed California. Actually helped build what became Zanamura Field at the, at the camp. Jody said that Zanamura helped organize different baseball teams, and teams from the camp would play other ones from outside of the camp. 
1945, the state champions from Tucson went to the camp for a game. But when the team from Gila River wanted to travel to Tucson to face their opponent again, they couldn't. Kenichi wrote to the coach of the Tucson team. He explained that they were concerned about the team's safety and safety in general in Tucson, given the racism the team would face. For the women in the camp, their experience could vary depending on generation. Karen said that the Issei women, women who had immigrated from Japan, experienced incarceration differently than the Nisei women, their daughters who were U.S. citizens. So the Issei women, um, some, many who had worked alongside their husbands on the farms, those who were farmers, or in their businesses, or family businesses, they, some of them said, you know, this is the first chance they had to interact with other Issei women. For Issei women, the chance to take a break from working and raising children meant that they had time to do things like learn a craft. It depended on their age. So those who had been in college and were not able to complete college, it was a very difficult experience because they didn't know what their future was going to be. But Issei and Nisei women alike shared in their sense of worry and concern for the Japanese-American men who had volunteered to fight. When the U.S. first declared war, it did not allow Japanese-American men to enlist. As the need for more fighting increased, the War Department created the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which was comprised of Japanese-Americans. Maso Watanabe was incarcerated in Idaho. He volunteered to fight with the 442nd. In an interview with Densho, he said that volunteering was the right thing to do despite the fact that the rejection he felt during incarceration was very painful. Because, gee, uh, if you're going to live here or, you know, uh, you've got to be a part of society. You've got to do what uh, is expected of you. And uh, I had no problem volunteering. I don't know which was worse. being locked up in camp or going off to war. At the Gila River camp, internees erected a monument to those who volunteered, and the regimental team would become famous for its rescue of the Lost Battalion. The Lost Battalion was a battalion from Texas, and I think there was about 100 men that were surrounded by Germans in Bruyères, France, and they had American soldiers had tried twice to get up there to get them uh, freed, and they couldn't do it. So they called in the 442nd, and in a few days they got up there and got the 100th Battalion freed with the loss of almost 100 men. By the end of the war, the 442nd would become one of the most decorated units in U.S. military history for its size and length of service. Hey, it's me, Kayla again. Thank you, Katie, for such an up-close and personal look at what life was like in the camps here in Arizona. And I know you have more coming next week. Yes, I do. 
This week's show focused a lot on the incarceration of Japanese Americans and what life was like in the incarceration camps. Next week, we'll look at what life was like for Japanese Americans who were not sent to incarceration camps. We'll also talk about what life was like for Japanese Americans after the war, including the process of redress that happened in the 1980s. We gather here today to right a grave wrong. Yes, the nation was then at war, struggling for its survival, and it's not for us today to pass judgment upon those who may have made mistakes while engaged in that great struggle. Yet we must recognize that the internment of Japanese Americans was just that, a mistake. Well, I'm looking forward to the next episode. If you're listening to this one, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your shows so that you don't miss the next episode. And while you're at it, let us know what other questions you have about life in the Valley. Submit your question at valley101podcast.azcentral.com or on Twitter at valley101pod. All right, that's it for today. See you next week.